Hey, writing and querying friends, Abigail here. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to share some really exciting news. I'm hosting a workshop on querying and the query process, and I'd love for you to come. It's called Query Like a Pro, Three Steps That Help Writers Get Requests. And my goal for you is simple. I want to make what writers sometimes find an overwhelming and scary process, something that is not only manageable, but possible. In short, I want to teach you how to query literary agents with direction and confidence. All in 90 minutes, I'll cover what I found to be three indispensable steps that writers need to tackle as they prepare, write, and finally send their query letter and other submission package materials to their list of literary agents. Plus, this workshop is a live training which means I leave time for Q&A at the end and welcome your budding questions. It's all happening on Thursday, April 20th, 2023 at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, which is just around the corner. If this excites you, head over to www.abigailkperry.com query to sign up or learn more. I hope to see you there and that you enjoy today's special episode with the wonderful literary agent, Victoria Marini. I think some people struggle with the external and get this idea that it has to be kind of very big and um, driven in the sense of Michael Bay stuff. Things have to explode or there have to be lasers and magic. And it's not that I don't love all of that. I do. But I just think the external has to be active, meaning pursuit, meaning something has to be reconciled for that character that cannot be until they take a decisive step in some direction. And that's really what I look for is, is that character, whether it's big high concept Michael Bay or whether it is Sawkill Girls or whether it is Song Below Water or So Many Beginnings, which is a little women retelling, which, you know, there's no magic and there's no explosions in that. And I still felt like that was a tremendously active novel externally because it's about characters who have agency and are making decisions. Hey there, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career, and also to master the writing process in order to draft the best version of their manuscripts so that they can hook their dream literary agents. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who's eager to help writers learn how to blend passion with business by speaking to literary agents interviewing authors, and performing deep dive analysis on first chapters. Today, I have another great literary agent that we're going to talk to. She has a wealth of insights on a variety of topics and represents a broad range of genres. So there's a lot to learn from whether or not you're a kid lit writer to an adult writer, fantasy, upmarket, dark and edgy. We have a huge manuscript wish list that we're going to dig into, along with many other fiction skills that a writer can master in order to elevate their storytelling abilities. This literary agent is Victoria Marini, and she began her career as a literary agent at Gelfman Schneider and ICM Partners before joining the Irene Goodman Agency in 2016, Irene Goodman Agency, also known as IGLA. Originally from rural Pennsylvania, 
She moved to New York in 2003 and began her literary career as an assistant at Sterling Lord in 2007. She's interested in both upmarket and commercial adult, middle grade and young adult, and fiction with compulsive hooks, strong plotting, and well-drawn characters. From literary page turners to commercial suspense, to magical realism, whimsical adventure, edgy sci-fi, and grounded fantasy, Victoria is always looking for unforgettable, off-the-page characters, high concepts, and unique voices. She is a sucker for quirk, mystery, small-town hysteria, atmosphere, secrets, things that go bump in the night, a bit of charm, a twist of magic, or a dash of humor. You can query Victoria at victoria.queries at irenegoodman.com, and I will share that information and a link to where you can find submission guidelines in the show notes. I'm grateful to introduce Victoria. Hi, Victoria. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm thrilled to have you here. You are such a bubbly person. I love to hear everything that you have to say. I get that impression from you right away from your website, and I'm going to share your website in the show notes. But I just wanted to say, I love how conversational your homepage is. And I think that that's so welcoming to writers. I think writers can be super intimidated about the submission process. They get super intimidated by literary agents in general. So thank you for you know opening it up and being so conversational for writers. I'm excited to share you with them today. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I'm, I'm happy about that. I try to make the process as transparent as possible. <laughs> Yeah, you do a good job at it. I think it's great. And I actually will have some questions to ask you about that a little later. Okay. But before we do that, I'd love to hear about your career path and just get a sense of what brought you into the literary agent world as a profession, anything that inspired you and what that career path looks like for you. Sure. I was a very late reader. I was not a child who read early and vociferously. I didn't really get excited about reading until I was an early teenager. And I read a series of YA thrillers called Zodiac Chillers. And they were, if memory serves, kind of formulaic and soapy. And I adored them. That kind of started my love of reading and words. And then by the time I got to college, I majored in English, as many English majors do. People get questions about, you know, will you be a lawyer? Will you be a teacher? And I wasn't quite sure what to do. And I interned at a film and television rights agency. So it was an agency that specifically licensed rights for books to film and television studios. So whenever you see a show or a movie based on a book, those rights were adapted and licensed by the film and television studio or writer or, you know, whomever buys those rights. So I worked at an agency that handled that book to film rights process. And I would read manuscripts and deliver reader reports about whether or not they would be good movies. And I was terrible at it. I just don't have the same movie taste that I do in books. And I was awful, but I found that I was very good at and really liked reading manuscripts that weren't yet published and thinking like, oh, I bet Little Brown would be great with this. This reminds me of that book or this reminds me of that book or, you know, oh, I bet someone who loved Zodiac Trillers would love this. And when my internship was up, I mentioned to the owner of the company that I wish that job existed. And he was like, it does. That's what a literary agent does. And he had a network that included literary agencies. So that was how I got my first job 
as an agency assistant at Sterling Lord. So that's sort of how I meandered my way into this gig. That's really cool. I have a background in film as well, but I was in the creative production mm -hmm. you know, internship. So I was just doing the scripts. But one of those things, I'm just always fascinated by the book to script because there are, you know, structurally stories are the same. There's a reason why like mm -hmm. Save the Cat by Blake Snyder and Save the Cat writes a novel by Jessica Brody. <laughs> there, there is a structural pattern in stories, but they are quite different as a medium. So yeah. you mentioned that that wasn't your strongest suit picking out what it was. Right. But I'm curious, when you're looking at a story, do you ever envision this will make a good TV show or a good movie or no? Well, I have film and television co-agents who are much better than that at, <laughs> at that than I am. Yeah. So I have film and TV co-agents who are much better at that than I am. And I sometimes feel that way if I really love a character or something has a very sort of propulsive, high-concept sort of hook or something feels cinematic. My problem with that job is I am not a visual person. I don't visually learn. It's hard for me to picture things. And I just never quite got over when I would read stories and try to evaluate whether or not they would be good movies. I never quite got to a place where I could sort of envision what it looked like and how a story might be told in a visual way. Mm -hmm. It's also why I almost never do picture books or graphic novels. I've done a few for clients that are pre-existing, but in general, I don't acquire them because that's not a natural skill set I have. Mm -hmm. How images tell stories is difficult for me. Words, so, great, solid. So interesting, though, because if you love fantasy and sci-fi, which mm -hmm. are scribing a fantasy world or a sci-fi world, so much detail has to go into that. What is your strong suit then on being able to visualize that through words? How do you get the magic in its own sense so, there? Basically, it's very easy for me to inhabit a setting. Setting is very particular and that I like. So world building... I understand and really appeals to me because to me, it feels very sort of bodily and physical. It's sort of like magic or the rule systems or strange world. Like I can picture them, but because someone is telling me the story already, I don't have to try and labor to know how the image might tell the story. If there is a, you know, description or imagery in the novel, that's already fixed for me. So mm -hmm. I don't have to do that labor myself. So I love receiving that information and inhabiting those worlds. I just can't, if I'm the one who has to do the imagining of how that works visually, there's where I can't quite do it. Which is not, yeah, like I love imagery and I love the visual aspects. It's just that I have a hard time coming up with them myself. I understand that. With something like that, when you're having, it sounds like description and setting are really important to you when you're reading a story mm -hmm. because that helps you really visualize on a physical level even what the story mm -hmm. is about versus like a script where everything is dominantly driven by dialogue and occasionally yep. there will be direction on what you're looking at, but realistically, it's mostly up to the director, the actors to create those visuals. Yeah. So, and, in, you know, and translating something to a script is like, I always struggled with how would you create internal reflection or mm -hmm. emotion or exposition. And not that, I mean, not that novels should have 
pages and pages of only exposition, but there's often at least a little bit. And, you know, you don't get an opportunity in a script to be like, this character feels this way. And I could never quite make the leap for how to demonstrate that in uh, film or TV. That's one of the things. I love both scripts and books. I started out in film, but then I went to publishing because I was like, this is where books are born. So this is where I want to be. And I do think mm-hmm. it gives you more freedom to figure out, you, you know, you play God of your story, right? So you're figuring it out yeah. everything. You mentioned internal reflections. And I think mm-hmm. that is imperative in differentiating between a book and a script and creating this interiority in the sense of allowing us to bring the reader really closely to the character because mm-hmm. you need that balance of internal and external. What are some stories that you think do that really well? And how do you connect as a writer or as a reader on the balance of external and internal? So I tend to think of the balance with internal and, and external, not necessarily as action, but as active. So I think some people struggle when they're trying to achieve the external states and they're trying to create big plot or big story or momentum. There is this tendency sometimes, particularly if you are a pantser or you're character driven or feeling is where stories start for you. I think some people struggle with the external and get this idea that it has to be kind of very big and um, driven in the sense of Michael Bay stuff. Things have to explode or there have to be lasers and magic. And it's not that I don't love all of that. I do. But I just think the external has to be active, meaning pursuit, meaning something has to be reconciled for that character that cannot be until they take a decisive step in some direction. And that's really what I look for for is, is that character, whether it's big high concept Michael Bay or whether it is Sawkill Girls or whether it is Song Below Water or So Many Beginnings, which was a little women retelling, which there's no magic and there's no explosions in that. And I still felt like that was a tremendously active novel externally because it's about characters who have agency and are making decisions. Sometimes it can be that they are the only ones making decisions. Sometimes it's that they're forced because they're reacting. But it's about them having to drive the core engine of conflict in that story. Decision making is really important for characters in that way. Like being able to understand why a character is reacting to a certain thing. It helps us, even if it's not on the page, assume that they're making some sort of crisis decision that's going to be imperative, you know, really will determine how they move forward in the story. Mm -hmm. And I think decision making is critical for character development because it also allows for one of my favorite things, which is characters who make terrible decisions. And I think character development is so important because if you can understand why a character is making terrible decisions, you feel empathize with them and root for them and champion them, even when they are not quote unquote likable, which I don't generally love using across the board. I think that's a really limiting myopic way of thinking about character development, but you still, they're still the hero of the story for you, even when they're making poor choices. Are there any big character development strategies that certain authors have used that have connected to you deeply that are you're really drawn to as an agent and as a reader? Yeah, Margaret Owen, who wrote Little Thieves and Merciful Crow, and she's fabulous at character development. She has a lot of flawed characters, which I love. And 
she spends a lot of time exploring their motivations, but also their sense of humor and their voice and their mannerisms and their cadence. And I'm always, always really drawn to her characters. Claire Legrand, I think, is really skilled with characters. As I mean, all my clients, I think, are really skilled with character development, or I probably wouldn't be offering rep because it's one of the important elements for me. But yeah, I think just really spending a lot of time with them and knowing how they would behave outside of this you know, the context of the moments in your story. Like, how are they going to behave when we're not necessarily looking at them, I think is a a good exercise for anyone. What if they're not in your story and they're just going to school or running to the grocery store? Like, what that look like for them, I think can be maybe counterintuitive in terms of it's an exercise that doesn't really go into your story, but I think it can really help create a complete person. Yeah. I went to a presentation by Frederick Backman and he makes mm -hmm. amazing, he just crafts amazing characters. And he talked about how he needs to take a certain quirk, habit, whatever it is that he notices someone does. And he has to put that in a character. And even just that one thing allows mm -hmm. that character to become real. So, mm -hmm. and then I've heard Matt Haig talk about how when he was writing The Midnight Library, Nora was originally a male protagonist, and then he switched to Nora. And part of that change allowed him to separate himself from her so that she could become her, which mm -hmm. I find, I just find that really interesting because that's something as, you know, I'm trying to get back into my own writing. And characters, I feel like they're what come to you first. A lot of the, maybe it's, mm -hmm. it's either usually the idea or, mm -hmm. you know, the plot idea, the hook or the characters, but they have to coexist. Like the story does not work without characters for me. It's about character transformation. So how would you encourage, if you've ever done this with your clients or just in general, how do you encourage writers to start to figure out how to make the characters inspired by people, inspired by them, but not them? How can they become their own person often on the page? By the time the stories make it to me, that's usually not part of the editorial process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the event that it is, or I sort of have advice. I think it's mostly about putting the book down for a while and stepping away from them. Because I think when you get too close to them, like if you're too close to anything, it becomes hard to visualize it as a whole and it becomes hard to get an objective sense about them. Mm -hmm. So in the event that someone is struggling with character, I usually say, let's put the book down for a minute and take a step back so you can come to it fresh. And after that, I think it's really about close reading them and asking questions about why they behave the way they behave, what's happening or happened to them that has made them respond this way or that way to given impetus in the novel. And that usually unlocks more of their narrative that might just not be on the page. Do you know what I mean? Like it unlocks... Mm -hmm bits of them for their creators that might have eluded you because it wasn't part of the novel. Figuring out who they are as a, mm -hmm. as a person. So you mentioned that by the time that a manuscript gets to you, you're probably not doing necessarily that developmental work because it's at a different mm -hmm. stage. Can you talk to us about where writers usually are when they do deliver to you, either as clients, of course, like as querying, they have to get a whole manuscript that needs to be done. Yeah, a very different beast. But then I, um, after, so after you sign clients, how does that work, that relationship and where you're supporting them and when do they work with you in the process? 
So I am very editorial in that. So I think it's not necessarily about agents, but about particularly me. Character development is so important for me as a reader. So the likelihood that I offer and sign on something where I love the idea or I love the plot, but I don't think the characters are there is really slim. That's just not the sort of material that I in particular would often offer on. Other way around happens sometimes where like, I love a character, I love an idea, but the plot's a mess. Those I might still take on. As a result, the work I do editorially with my clients is almost always plot driven. If I'm doing pretty intense overhauls with clients, it's usually a lot of structure or the pacing here is off or these events are too close together or these need to be further apart or your character did this over here, but this over here and that's throwing off why they're moving in this direction or that doesn't, that's not inconsistent with how this works. So my, I do do editorial work with my clients after I sign with them. The longer I represent someone and the more books they publish, it, the trend seems to be that that lessens over time simply because the more practice they have, the cleaner their drafts get. So I usually will do a read through and you get edit letter notes, all of that. We do some revision and then it goes on submission. So I do plenty of editorial work. It's just tends not to be about character development too often. That makes sense because if you are signing clients who already have shown that they can master character development, it's likely that's consistent across their future manuscripts. <laughs> Yeah. And for me personally, when I'm reading a story and there's something off with like the pacing or tension or plot, and sometimes rejections will be like, I don't have the vision for this. And that's a real thing because sometimes I'll read something and I'll be like, this is great, but the plot or pacing or structure or what have you is off. And I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what I would tell this person to materially and tangibly do in order to remedy that. And at that point, I'm usually going to pass on something if I can't help you. So why would we be here together? Sometimes I'll read things and they're good and something is off. But I think, oh, if that person moved this to chapter four and they took that villain out, combined these two characters who then do this one thing within the plot. And I start feeling like it's almost like a recipe, like I start knowing what I would add or subtract and it feels material and actionable at that point I could offer on it and then we work on it um mm -hmm. it's just that for me voice and character I don't know how I'm not a writer I'm not an author and even if I were I'm not you so I don't know how to do that voice in particular that's, that's where it's like voice in like, particular yeah. right you know I can help in terms of like why is your character doing this or what is it you know frequently we'll say like what does that character want and what's in their way? What are they pursuing in this scene? What That and all of that motivation and that part of development I can do. But voice in particular, I can't. That's a magic that, that I can't recreate or help. Do you think that for writers in there who are not getting requests because of voice, because I know I've heard several agents several. say to me that voice can be a deciding factor. It will be like ultimately you, you connect with voice quickly yep. or you don't, right? Yeah. So you can make a decision pretty quickly. And if you're going to connect with a voice or not, for writers mm -hmm. who, are, who are getting rejections because of their voice, even if there's no concrete, practical way of helping someone improve their voice, 
Is it just a matter of continuing to practice writing? Is that really how you enhance your voice? Or sometimes I say like, go find your invisible mentors. So other just reading a lot. Do you think it can come with time? Or do you think you either have it or you don't? I don't know, honestly. I think perhaps maybe a bit of both. I think there is an evolution to it. I think people evolve into more of themselves as we grow. So I don't totally see why voice couldn't do that as well. Mm -hmm. And there are certainly plenty of authors who write three, four, five, six, seven novels before they find their agent. We have this tendency to think of, quote, like we have this tendency to think of book deals as these instant overnight things or even sort of critical or commercial success in this industry as instant. And I I don't know of anyone who hasn't had an instant experience. <laughs> right. I think maybe some people are sort of fortunate in that voice is a natural talent that comes easy. In the same way that like, you know, someone might be very gifted at playing the guitar and they pick it up and they're a natural and it's easy for them. And someone else might have to practice for a while in order to get there. But I think both are valid, valid paths. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Well, I, I think that's probably reassuring to hear that it's not instantaneous, right? Because I know that a lot of writers who have been doing this for a while have heard that advice before, but it's very easy to pick up a published book, read it and think to yourself, oh, I'm never going to get to that level. And we forget that we go through way more than two drafts, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's and like you could usually go through like seven plus drafts, maybe, you know, it's like I'm yeah. not think there's an average amount of drafts, but you're going to have multiple drafts before you get to a final version. And I think the advent of social media has added to that in some ways, mm -hmm. because it's like only seeing the after in a before and after scenario. And everybody is so much more visible now and the process is getting more visible, which is great in the sense of accessibility for authors. So, yeah, I think there is this element of now that everything is so public, all of the pieces of the journey for some people, but you can pick and choose what to share. But you see like, oh, I got this deal or, oh, this is published or here's my bestseller list book and all of that. But you might not see the toil that goes into it. And there's toil. Yeah, for sure. Right. <laughs> oh, wait. Yeah. Yeah. Even even seasoned authors you know, mm -hmm. are going to have toil at some point. There are just going yeah. to be times where it's more difficult. Yep. But you have to persevere, right? That's how I would say you persevere and you find your resiliency and you keep going and that's where you can get through mm -hmm. things. So a big reason why we're here is we do like to talk about your manuscript wish list. And you have a broad range of genres yes. that you represent. So I'd yep. love to hear that range of genres that you're representing. What are you looking for right now? You have this amazing PDF that you can download up on your website. I will add that in the show notes. So that's very specific. But if you could elaborate on what you're looking for, any comps that you enjoy or anything specific about these genres that you're that you're looking for, that would be great. Yeah. So all age ranges, I'm middle grade through adult. And right now, I feel like I'm just very hungry for things that feel escapist and really original and fresh. I'm always looking in genre fiction. I'm always looking for sci-fi, fantasy, horror, thriller, mystery. I love crime, but I tend to do less procedural. So when I say crime, love an amateur sleuth, fantastic. All about it. Less law enforcement. And I also love a dash of magic or something that feels 
very grounded and contemporary, but has whimsy or fantastical or speculative elements in it. So in terms of comps, I really loved Adrian Young's Spells for Forgetting, which is essentially a mystery, a very propulsive multiple POV mystery, but there's a little bit of magic in it. And that's very much my space. And on the other end, I love rom-coms with a little bit of magic. I listened to the audiobook of X-Hex recently and thought it was a delight. So really into that right now. I would love some rom-venture. So like rom-com with an adventurous plot or rom-com with an atypical structure. If you think of like Sliding Doors, where there's the two timelines, Kate Atkinson's Life After Life, which wasn't really a rom-com, but did have a fantastic structure and architecture to it. And then I also love things that are what I call genre adjacent. It's really about sort of market fiction that might borrow from genre tropes, but in a sort of voicey, literary or character driven way. So I'm trying to think of some comps. Marlon James, The Black Leopard, Tuesday Mooney Talks to Ghosts, which I read recently, although it came out a while ago. And that's one that eccentric billionaire puzzle solving mystery, but still feels like really contemporary and current. Britt Bennett, I feel like, is a very genre adjacent author with The Vanishing Half. And Mothers, which I loved. Danya Kukafka's work, I think, is fantastic and very genre adjacent. Her debut was called Girl in Snow a little while ago. Mm-hmm. And that I forget when that came out, but that was a good example of it's a thriller and a mystery, but it's really sort of emotionally nuanced and thoughtful. So that's really appealing right now. So do you see genre adjacent as different than genre blending? No, not particularly. The only difference is... Genre blending, I think, is a little bit harder because it can be very... So genre adjacent, it is adjacent to one genre. So like, I'm trying to think of something... Jackal by E.E. E. Adams that came out recently is very upmarket horror and thriller a little bit. But it's very clearly... It's got a supernatural element, but it still feels very sort of like upmarket thriller. Mm-hmm. Genre blending, I tend to find is sci-fi or fantasy or those can work really well, but I think occasionally they can be trickier because one element can eclipse the other. Mm-hmm. But that entire depends on execution. So they're pretty close. I think of blending as taking two genre elements and putting them together. And I think okay. of adjacent as like using a trope from a genre. Okay. okay. And can you explain tropes to us? Oh, you know what is wild? No one has ever asked me to do that. And it's a little bit like, well, I know and, it when I see it. Yeah. Well, um, this is the thing, because like I, you know, you always don't want to be too tropey, but then how can you yeah. use tropes in a strong way? So I guess this can't be the real definition. I'm fully making this up. It is embarrassing that I don't actually know the, the literal definition. A trope is, I guess, a repeated premise or plot device in narratives that we see frequently. For example, rom-com tropes are like fake dating, Mm -hmm. enemies to lovers, second chance, those kinds of repeated setups. In horror, there's like the jump scare. There's, you know, the final girl. Thriller, it's the the butler did it in Thriller and Mystery is a trope. We almost never see that anymore. I think that's become more of a sort of cheeky slogan, but they're sort of repeated, often utilized plot turns or character turns mm-hmm. in a particular kind of narrative. Mm-hmm. To my mind. That's how I think of them. When would you be using a trope 
in a way that would probably get a rejection. If we've seen it before and you don't have a unique way of doing it. So like, so for example, like if you're talking about enemies to lovers, right? Sally Thorne's that like we've seen that a million times. Sally Thorne's The Hating Game came out a few years ago and that was another one, but it blew up. And I think it did really well because it had the element of it was also sort of a workplace rom-com. So they worked together, hated each other, and they're rivals for a particular promotion. So I think that's a very sort of pitchable fresh take and her characters were just really fun and engaging and unique so I think that that's why a lot of people responded to that even when we've seen plenty of fake dating stories before and if you're using like multiple tropes in one story you get a that can be sort of tiresome so it's all about doing them in like a fresh or exciting way great and the other thing that you represent a lot of, you ask specifically for underrepresented voices, BIPOC authors, LGBTQ+, disabilities, all of these areas of underrepresented authors, which I love and I'm always excited to promote that. I wanted to just get your feedback and opinion on this. Sometimes writers who are not of a certain race, demographic, gender, mm-hmm. they want to write a protagonist who is not representative of their experience. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Is that something that you would represent? And if not, why would you not represent that? I never say never, but probably not. Only because I find they're not often sensitively portrayed or accurate. So if someone is writing cross-culturally, again, I never say never, right? Like, I think it can be done, particularly if you're right, you know, like if you are writing cross-culturally for characters that are important, but maybe not main characters or maybe not POV characters, I think that can be a bit more accurately done. And I think if someone is doing that, I guess my thought would be, why? What is, what is the need there? Why you? Mm-hmm. Uh, and why not someone else, someone who is closer to that experience and will be able to portray that character in a realistic way? Again, never say never, but I have yet to I'm trying to think. I I think I have yet to sign something that is cross-cultural in the sense that like a main character with a point of view is being written by someone who does not share their identity. I think I might be right. I might be wrong. If I have, it's been not, it's unusual. It's an outlier. Mm-hmm. I'm with you on the why. I think that's where I go when I am working with writers and I ask that question mm-hmm. if it is that area. Also, I was just thinking because we had our conversation about voice earlier and you answered me <laughs> when I was thinking this, but this idea of voice and would the voice not be as authentic and it would make sense for it to not be as authentic as someone else's perspective who yeah. does live that experience, who is that identity. So yeah, I've never loved the feedback that someone can't relate. I mm-hmm. sort of feel like that's the purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, not for t- I, like, you know, to the extent that everybody's human, I feel like there's inherent relation. So I've never particularly enjoyed that feedback. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. I th- agree with you. I-, I think everyone can relate on a human level. Mm-hmm. And even if you can't, then learn. All right. So we talked a little bit about this before. You love magic. And mm-hmm. one of the things that you were kind of getting into this when you were giving off your comps, I think sometimes this is something that I've been hearing more of, but there's so many subcategories within a genre. And mm-hmm. I think that 
when you are in the business, if you're an agent, if you're an editor, these roll off the tongue. If you're a bookseller, these roll off the tongue. For writers, sometimes sorting through trying to figure out exactly what a subcategory is within their genre can be confusing. Um, mm-hmm. As an example, I'll follow a bookseller who was talking about cozy, like fantasy now has a, an upcoming area of like cozy fantasy. So mm-hmm. it's like uh, Legends and Lattes was the example that they were giving. Yeah, I'm curious. Pot, pot core, cozy yeah. Fantasy. Yeah. So one of my questions is for people who are feeling overwhelmed or confused with all of those how do I figure out what my subcategory is within my genre? What's some advice you could give to them? And also inside of your comp list, are there any of these big subcategories or anything that you represent that you think is doing a really good job at representing that subcategory and would be more of what you'd like to see? I would love more cozy fantasy. I've done a lot of big world building fantasy, but since we're on the subject, cozy fantasy is delightful. So I think in terms of trying to figure out your subcategory, comps are a good place to start. Like if you can think about, okay, so people who like this X book would like my book. And then if you can sort of reverse engineer, that sometimes helps me in terms of I'm looking at all of these comps. And then, and sometimes it's like, you might need to go to a different platform. Like Instagram, the hashtags on Instagram and Twitter I find are actually quite helpful in terms of learning what a specific, you know, like that's where I found Cottagecore. Mm-hmm. The first time I ever saw Cottagecore was a hashtag on Instagram. And I was like, oh, I get it. So I think that that can be really helpful in terms of, okay, so this is a book I read recently that I really like. This is a cozy fantasy or this is Cottagecore or this is body horror and checking out titles that are similar to yours and figuring out what those are can help you drill down and find what yours is. Mm-hmm. That's probably the most tangible way I think you can do it. Otherwise, it's just a whole lot of researching vibes and paying attention to everything coming out, which is difficult. That's kind of why I have my job, because I do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a lot for someone who's also actually writing the book. Um, So you wouldn't expect them to nail it in a query letter. If they can get the genre, then they're in a good area. Yeah, like I think that it would be, if they can, great, excellent. But like if someone has body horror and is, you know, just says in their query letter, this is my horror novel, I'm not going to turn it down because you didn't know the specific subgenre. I think it is helpful to know because the more you understand about your own work and where it fits in the market, the better. So I don't want to say, oh, don't worry about it because I think it's to your advantage to know. And also, like, you might not be writing as clearly in a particular subgenre. And if you're looking for one, but you're just not writing in it, then I wouldn't put it. Mm-hmm. You might not even be yeah. it's shame what it you're mis- actually writing, right? Yeah, then it's misleading. And then, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, great. Something else that I saw. So you have on your website, you have a list of a lot of books that you've loved. Yes. And I had to pull this one out because I just read it for a book club, The Guest List by Lucy Foley. And yeah, one, it's okay. So one, it's I'm also watching White Lotus. So I felt like the descent into mm-hmm. characters was, was interesting. I've had so many people t- tell me to watch White Lotus because they were like, you launched the guest list. And I was like, yeah, what a ride. It was fun. And they were like, you got to watch White Lotus. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that I am enjoying season two. I was having a hard time with how cringe worthy the first season was. But yeah, um, I have- 
factor is tough for me. Uh, yeah. Yes. Block it because yeah. people who don't do really well are like you. You would love it in theory, but the cringe factor is. Oh, great. I had to like walk away during some conversations. I was like, "This is a little too much for me." Yeah, I, <laughs> the se- the second season, I'm I'm a little bit more on board. I've with. heard th- I've heard a lot yeah. of people say they prefer the second season. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know Jennifer Coolidge is is fun. So so bad. I, I, yeah, she's great. So I would, but it made me think of the guest list because part of the fun of the guest list is that you are introduced to this large cast of characters, really like an ensemble mm-hmm. cast of characters. And the deeper you go into the story, the more problems you see, the more flaws you see these characters. So it's an unraveling of, you know, the, the things are not what they seem type of thing. Mm-hmm. But one thing that really stood out to me and it, it resonated with me because I also saw something that you're attracted to is atmosphere. And mm-hmm. I felt like the guest list does a really great job with setting. You've mentioned how setting is something that you look for because we're trapped on this island. And mm-hmm. that's eerie in its own sense. And the setting yep. is And really a trope, like the, like the, the locked room mystery. Very much. Yeah. Very much so, right? Like, because any, at any time that you're going to have like a murder or a mystery of some sort or horror when you trap people on a, a yeah. restricted location, it's going to make it scarier by nature. Yep. But I wanted to get your, because I loved that you pulled it out, that you like atmospheric writing, that you're looking for setting. And I thought that the guest list, maybe it could be fun to explore if you agree that that one does a good job with setting an atmosphere. And if so, could you explain what atmospheric writing really is and how you can do that well or how you can identify when it's done well? I do think the guest list did atmosphere pretty well. For me, I'm trying to think of how to say this succinctly. Atmosphere for me is a particular quality that is pervasive throughout the story and the writing. And that kind of colors everything that's going on. So I think one thing that Lucy Foley did and does really well is the constant undercurrent of tension because they are trapped. The idea that they're stuck on this island, that spark of fear of being stuck pervades the whole story and all of the ways the characters are responding to one another. And I think that's what I mean when I say atmosphere. It's almost like like taking a crayon or a colored pencil and just like shaping everything you're doing with one light layer of a particular color. Or you see a lot now vision boards. I think those are really helpful. For atmosphere, especially for someone like me, who as we've established, like ha- has a hard time conjuring those things. I think vision boards are really helpful for establishing atmosphere because you're looking to create a certain tone and feeling. And whether that is sunshine or ease or lightness, or whether that is a sense of unease or threat or dread about a palette that, that is really like light and pretty and pastel versus the palette that is very dark, moody, and indigo. Those conjure different feelings in us. And I think that's how atmospheric writing feels to me. That's really interesting because I think then the atmosphere would go hand in hand with what a book cover would be representing. Oh, yeah. Like you want the book to- cover... I mean, they serve multiple functions, book covers, but it's important that they accurately reflect the tone and the atmosphere and the feeling of a book you're going to get. Like there's a reason, you know, rom-com covers and moody horror don't have the same. They don't often look the same. 
Yeah, for sure. I love the book covers from your clients. I love the Fury Me Burn. Too. Yeah, Fury Burn book cover is great. Yes. Oh, Cherish Farah, is that how do you pronounce that? Yes. So yes, Cherish Farah, I loved the book cover there. It's very drawn <laughs> to that yes. one and captivated. Do you have a lot of say as an agent in the design of a book cover? Or if there's a book cover that you're not pleased with, can you fight back for any of that? Or is that something that's up to the publishing house? So most contracts, not all, but most, have meaningful consultation in the cover, which means that it is ultimately, and it's up to the publisher, what the cover looks like. However, it is unusual that a publisher wouldn't discuss a cover with an author or would allow a cover that an author hated to be published because it's not in anyone's best interest. Why would you want your author to hate their cover? That's, that's just not helpful. So most of the time, if an author hates a cover or has strong feelings about it, yes, you can absolutely fight back and say, this, this is not what we're looking for and we do something else. And frequently, one thing I, I ask my clients to do is prior to the cover conversation, before the art direction begins, before that process happens, I love when clients put together a quick list of covers they love and covers they hated so that even before that occurs, the art team and the designer know this is a client who hates photorealistic faces on covers. Please don't do that. Or this is a client who particularly loves high contrast illustrated covers. Can we do something like that? I think that's really helpful because you can avoid dispute early on by saying this is what I love and this is what I don't love. And it helps them meet your expectations. A lot of this job is about communication. And I always say someone can't meet your expectations if they don't know what your needs are. So it's really helpful to have that earlier in the process. That's an amazing strategy. I love that you do that. And again, like the vision boards, right? <laughs> helps you land yep. exactly where someone is and what they're thinking mm -hmm. about. That's great. Yep. Well, we are at the top of the hour. So I do usually at the end of the podcast, what I do is a round called a lightning three. So what I give is three okay. quick questions. And I say answer these in one sentence, but if you don't answer them in one sentence, it's okay. <laughs> but if you can, then you can go for it. So the lightning three. Two, are you, do you feel ready to go into that? Yeah, I tend to, I, I've been rambly because I ramble when I'm nervous. I don't want to be succinct. You're giving very, like I always say, writers, I'm included in this. We want to learn more. So, so it's okay if you ramble. The, the, the more pieces, you let me ramble, yeah, the better. We're learning a lot from it. So that's what matters. Yeah, so exactly. for, yeah. Go for so, it. So for your first question for the Lightning Three, I you work at IGLA, which is mm -hmm. uh, the agency that you're at. And I they've been in business for 40 years. Mm -hmm. So they have been around for a long time. And I wanted to know what are some of your favorite things about the agency? And do you think that this is a testament to why they've been in business for so long? Yeah, my favorite thing about the agency is my colleagues. I work with fantastic women and they all have incredible taste, incredible skill. We love what we do, which is really special. And I think that's why Irene has been around for so long because she cultivated that. So follow up question to that. When sometimes I know like, because I always say to writers, when you're researching literary agents to query, you should also be researching the agency and really you should be, mm -hmm. like, you know, research the agency and research the literary agents. 
do you, yes. and you're saying colleagues are your number one. So with that, do you help one another? Like if if there's a manuscript that you might yeah. pass on, do you recommend it to someone else? Is Yeah, a lot of conversation yeah, I there. sold I sold a book called, by Laura Beth Johnson, called Goddess and the Machine. It was a YA sci-fi. I love it. She's brilliant. She has a brilliant, a brilliant next novel right now. And that was my colleague, Barbara Powell, who found that and was like, I love this. You should do it because she doesn't do much sci-fi. Mm. So we do. That's great. I have really mm. respected and loved that about the publishing business. I've seen that is something that it tends to be a lot more team effort. It's, it's interesting because this you're working, you know, as a literary agent, you're working with your clients and your business partners and working together there as a team, but also within the agency, you're working as a team, which means that there's good mentorship, which means that there's a good support system. So yeah, the agency is really important because, you know, support staff matters, mentorship matters. It's very much an apprentice type job. So mm -hmm. it matters where someone is learning. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Great. Awesome. Thank you. For my second question, I had mentioned that something that I really loved about your website was how approachable it is in walking writers through exactly how to query and what to expect. And this is huge because sometimes I feel like writers get overwhelmed with the research process and they're they're very nervous about making mistakes and, and misstepping and not doing the right thing. And we just need to take a breath and follow the submission guidelines and know that we're all human and that mm -hmm. we're going through this. So I love how approachable it's obvious <laughs> that you're working through anyone who wants to submit to you. But one of my questions is, I think that writers are unsure about following up. And sometimes I think they're unsure about, is that an appropriate thing to do or not? So I'd like to hear your answer and your viewpoints to that. I'd also like to know, and I know this is something that you add in there, why it's important for if a writer who has queried other agents receives an offer of representation, why it's important for them to notify you of that. I personally am fine with being nudged as long as it's been about 12 weeks. That's usually my maximum time for turnaround. So I try to answer everyone within 12 weeks. If it's been 12 weeks and you haven't heard, nudge away. And I don't know if other agents do the same thing. But I think if it's been several months and you're not hearing back, you can nudge. And <laughs> otherwise, I think it would be a no response means no. That's not my particular policy, but it is plenty of other people's. And why it's important to notify an agent if you have an offer of representation, because you might have more offers of representation if you let everybody who's got your query know that you have an offer. You might get people who request your full, read it, love it, and also want to offer. And then you have a choice to make, which can be stressful, but also really positive. And you might have a dream agent, but I encourage everyone to hear multiple agents out because you never know if someone else might be a surprise. That's great. Thank you. And for my third and final question, I'd like to ask for anyone who falls in the category of a manuscript that would be ideal for your wish list, what would make you the best literary agent for them? Is there something unique that you bring to the table that you would want to advocate when offering representation? I think it depends on the person in the book. I think for every single client I have, I am the best person for that. And I think I bring a lot of unique strategy and insight to 
effective advocacy. And I think that there is always an element of strategy and targeting and thoughtfulness about what we do and about envisioning an author's entire career and not just, is this one book good enough? But mm -hmm. where are you going? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to be in two years, five years, 10 years? So that's a, a particular approach that I have. It's very long term. You know, I don't offer on books if I think someone is only writing one book. I want people who are going to continue to write and grow and we can brainstorm and strategize ways to expand and break out and exploit multiple revenue streams. So I bring all of that, which I think is cool, but there's also the individual element and the individual book, and that's always case by case. What I'm hearing here is that you seriously consider on a case by case basis what is best for each client. Yes. And yes, you it's share. Not, it, yeah, it's not a one size fits all model. I don't have the same relationship with every single client mm -hmm. because some clients, it's all about what facilitates their career, what yes. facilitates their best output. I have some clients who send me four ideas, five ideas, and they're like, which one do I write next? And we talk about what's working in the market, what's breakout for right now. Does this one feel tired? Does this one feel really fresh? And we come together to talk about what's the best one to write next. I have clients who are utterly paralyzed by that idea and leave for eight months and then they come back to me when they have a new novel. So mm -hmm. it's entirely about what works for an individual. My job is to adapt to my clients' needs, not the other way around. Excellent. So you have a differentiated approach in that and you're hearing them on an individual level and, yeah, giving it's all very their, targeted. and giving them their voice, which is what I'm hearing too. You know, it's the idea of you're going to share a career vision, but you're making sure that you're not just trying to dominate their vision, that you're in agreement as to what the best steps forward are with your professional Absolutely. insights on how to yeah. navigate that world. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the same with editorial. It, all of the editing that I do is to make any given book the best version of itself. It's not to change it into something I wish it were. Yeah. I think that's a great answer. That brings us to the end of the podcast. So Victoria, thank you so much for your time and your thorough answers. I really appreciate it. And I hope that a lot of listeners out there are flagging you as a dream agent and <laughs> polishing up their manuscripts for you. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for coming back for another episode of Lit Match. I had a lot of fun and learned a lot from Victoria in today's conversation. And I hope that you were able to take down some great notes. And if Victoria is a dream literary agent for you, I hope that you go back into this episode and listen to those comps, listen to those specificities in fiction telling to see if you would be a good match for one another. I say this at the end of the episode, and I'm going to say it again because I really do mean this. I am so grateful for your support and this community of listeners who continually show up week after week to listen to Lit Match. This podcast is for you and wouldn't be the same without you. And I also applaud and am so grateful for the meaningful work you are doing as writers, putting your voices and stories down on paper and sharing them with the world. If you'd like to support the podcast and you haven't had a chance yet, you can do so by rating and reviewing the show and sharing it with like-minded fiction writers who are entering the submission process or would like to learn more about the writing craft. If you have any recommendations for the show, I'd love to hear from you. I do take each email that I receive seriously and do my best to answer everyone who reaches out to me. You can do so at abigailkperry at gmail.com 
or visiting my website, abigailkperry.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter in order to receive the latest news on the podcast, along with other great tips and downloads and freebies that I have planned for the future. Until next time, happy writing. If you're in the querying process, good luck and continue to persevere. I really do believe that if you persevere and you are resilient, you can craft the best manuscript possible and book your dream literary agent. I cannot wait to hear when you sign with the best literary agent for your writing career and celebrate your book when it comes out. 